Hi and welcome to the podcast. You are having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with returning guest Sammy Shah. We speak about uh, how his confidence has gone up since the last time we spoke in a professional sense, but also how his personal life has broken down, sort of discuss some interesting ideas about mental health and uh, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing that we as a society are focusing on it um, at the moment and the fact that it is probably both (laughs) in different ways. It was a fascinating conversation. I always enjoy talking to Sammy. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed having this conversation. I am in Melbourne at the moment at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. If you read my most recent Patreon post, it's free to access. You will um, get the whole story of why that looked like for a minute, that it was not going to happen. It was a little bit of a nightmare. I went on a family holiday to Queensland uh, and then there was a small outbreak there. And it looked like I wasn't going to be allowed to enter Victoria, the state of Victoria, in which Melbourne is the capital city of that state. So it was a very dramatic couple of days. Uh, But I'm here. I'm doing my show Kronos at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. If you are in Melbourne, do come along and watch it. If you are not, there will be a live stream on my Patreon on probably this Friday and quite possibly the Friday after that. And that will be free to access for all of my Patreon subscribers. Patreon.com slash Alice Fraser, as ever, is the place for that. Thank you for all of your support. Thank you for listening. Thank you for um, being a person in the world. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, Yeah, I can't say any more than that. I'll let you get on with listening to this conversation with me and Sammy Shah. You're having tea with Alice. So, who are you and what are you drinking? Mm, my name is Sammy Shah and I um, have just finished a bubble tea. Um, what was it? It was a black... Black sugar. Black sugar milk tea bubble tea. And it was very nice, very, very nice, very refreshing. Perfect thing to follow up a congee, which is what I had for lunch. So, mm, yeah. had a very liquidy diet. Very liquidy diet. That's why like, I think tonight's going to be just like ribs or some shit just like don't. that. Just <laughs> yeah. dry cereal. <laughs> yeah. Just dirt. I'm just going to eat dirt. Uh, yeah. So what have you been wrestling with of late? Oh, what have I been wrestling with? A lot of things. Uh, personal stuff in my life, things like that. But okay, I'll tell you what I've been... Is the question still phrased in the way that you used to, which is what's that unpopular opinion that you have? Well, or is so that separate? That's separate. That's okay, cool. I'll save it for that. I'll save that for then. Um, but what I've been wrestling with is um, I'm really happy with where I am creatively, which is very different from the last time you and I spoke. Yes, last time you were quite... Yes, I was, I was not sure what my voice was, I was not sure what, and that might happen again as I start working on a new show, but the, sh- the show I'm doing right now, the Melbourne Comedy Festival, is the first show where I, after years, I feel like a comedian doing a comedy show, and that feels really good. Um, I feel like I'm enjoying it and I've got a few projects going on where all of them, I'm like, okay, I'm a writer, I'm a comedian, I'm a documentarian, and I'm doing a writing work and comedy work and documentary work and all three of them are separate yeah but that makes me happy for once as opposed to me going but shouldn't they be integrated and shouldn't i do a, a one-man show which is five hours of me telling stories that make people cry and then also have documentary <laughs> truth and, like nah just do what you want to yeah so this is something that i've always wanted is this uh, is that kind of being able to do a lot of different things right and not have people think it's weird and, I, and you have you can see it's one of the things that I think we lack particularly female role models for. Mm-hmm. It's funny because I was talking before about how we don't necessarily need to see ourselves represented. Just, <laughs> <laughs> now you're contradicting <laughs> yourself, right? Yeah. But no, I mean, in that I don't need to see it represented for me to desire it. Yes. Real polymaths in the public eye, yeah. people who are doing a lot of different interesting things and that that's what's interesting about them. We have this tendency, particularly in the age of the internet, to like um, uh, compartmentalise people. This mm-hmm. is what they do. This is, yes. the, this is the box that they tick. This is the function that they fill. This is the search term I would use to find them. And so when you have somebody whose appeal is that they are prismatic or that yeah. you know they have these many angles... 
at the same time as we're asking people to do these portfolio careers, we don't want to think of them yes. as being multifaceted. I find that very frustrating. The the only person I, I've personally been able to think of as a role model in this, whose career, and I can't say I followed his career because his career is at one level and I am very, very, very yeah. different level, is Stephen Fry. That's what I always say. I say I want to be Stephen Fry. When they yeah. say people, you know, and they're yeah. like, but that's not a, a woman. I'm like, I know. And obviously he's more he was more successful at my age than I will ever be. Right. But... That idea of somebody who can do something silly <coughs> mm-hmm. and then do something heartbreakingly serious and no one thinks, oh, yeah. well, there's no love. Like, and writes a fiction novel, then writes an, uh, your book three of his ongoing autobiography, and then writes something about Greek myths and then does a new drama series. And, that, and that's why, so like right now, I, in, you know, work-wise, I'm at that point where I have a kind of sort of day job. It's a part-time gig where I teach journalism at University of Melbourne. So mm-hmm. I'm a journalism teacher at University of Melbourne, tutor, and sometimes I lecture as well. Um, I am also right, I just finished a script for um, Audible, Amazon, which is a crime noir series. And it's yes. a dark, very dark, very, very brutal story um, that took me a long time to write, and I'm very happy with it, and they're happy with it. I'm also working on a novel, which is uh, a novel about media and stuff. And I sold a short story last week about um, uh, Islam and the Vikings intersecting, but it's really about jinns meeting Loki for the first time. Amazing. And I did, I'm doing a comedy show, which is about my marriage falling apart and, and, and racial politics in Australia. And I'm really, really genuinely, for the very first time, happy that I'm able to do all those things. Now, all those things combined pay my rent. Yeah. And my bills. Yes. You know, I'm not in the place where Stephen Fry or one of those people is where one of those things pays for a house, a, a lifestyle, <laughs> and everything else is pure profit yeah. or whatever. But I realized, and I think it's lockdown that's made me realize this, which is I need to be more grateful for the bizarre life I have. And yes, I need to hustle harder to pay bills. Yes. But so does everyone now. Yeah, it's just a different does. world. Right? And yeah. that's fine. And then also on top of that, I think, you know, I'm torn. I, you know, money doesn't buy happiness, um, except that it does. Oh, it definitely does. It absolutely, bu- money buys you freedom. Money buys you freedom to then buy happiness. And not being free is yes. a very sad state. Yes. So you need to have a certain amount of money. I think beyond a certain point, it's a massively diminishing yes. returns and money in and of itself I mean, if, if money makes you happy, good good on you. <laughs> but uh, what if you have the freedom to do these different projects? Yeah. Then that's sort of what you would buy. When I, I think about that's all I'd buy with the money. Exactly. When I when I quit law, I I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I I looked at the money I was making, mm-hmm. and I thought, what would I buy with my money? And the answer was, I would buy that time back. Yes. So I think of myself as a very well-paid comedian because mm-hmm. I'm being paid a lot <laughs> to, and I'm buying back all my time yeah. with that money. I remember Laura Davis uh, had once said, when you and Laura were talking on this podcast, I think years ago, and LD had said that she would, the reason why she would want to have money is so she can pay her friends to keep creating cool art. And I remember thinking, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Like, the, I, I don't want money. Look, I have a daughter, so I want some money to be able to, you know, make sure she, her life is comfortable, yeah. you know. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I don't want her to be, have a life of luxury, but I don't want her to have a life of economic anxiety all the time. It's exhausting. <laughs> but I also want to do things like, hey, my friend needs a podcasting kit and they, I have, they've got a great idea. I'll buy it for them. Or, yeah. or hey... Let's just put our money into this and just have a festival of our own that we fund. You know, like a, a Melbourne comedy festival that's off, you know, the off fringe. The, yeah, what is yeah, it called? Yeah, free off, fringe. Yeah, free fringe. Yeah. The free version of that that we do here, maybe something fun. That's what I want money yeah. for. Yeah. It's for dumb, fun things that my friends and I can explore. Oh, yeah. If I ever buy a house, which I probably won't. Yeah, I don't see that happening Because I'm never going to get a mortgage, right? I'll either be able to buy a house out of pocket change because I'll have some ridiculous luck or I'll right. buy a house. But if I were to buy a house, <laughs> I would want like an extra bedroom somewhere mm-hmm. or like a shed off the side that I could just be like, you're talented, don't pay rent for six months. Yeah. You know, because I think that's one of the, one of the biggest privileges that I have had 
I've only ever once asked my dad for money in my whole life. Yeah. And he said no. <laughs> oh, wow. So when I first came to Melbourne and I said, you know, if you if I can borrow this money, yeah. then uh, I'll be able to do the festival in this way. I'll be able to get more advertising. I'll be uh, able to get yeah, a better yeah. venue. I'll be able to do all these things. I'll be able to get better accommodation, all of this. And he said, no, you know, you've made this decision to pursue this career. It either works or it doesn't. Yeah, And that's the only time I ever asked him for money. He said, no. But the great privilege that I've had is knowing that if everything goes tits up, I can go home. Yes. That wherever he is in the world, I will be welcome to come and stay. For me, that's the one thing that now I realize I don't have. Yeah. I can't go back to Pakistan. Yeah. So I, so that's why, that's what scared me in the last two years. But I also feel like I've gotten, and you know, the, I have that panic and, and thing that you, all freelancers have, which is, you know, every month you're like, all right, how am I doing this next month? Yeah. You find a way. Yeah. I've now learned to have faith in my ability to find a way. I've been able to pay off debts and bills and all of those things. And, um, and I won't ever buy a house myself, but I'll probably end up buying one for my daughter by, you know, w- with my ex-wife's help and things like that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I feel like the only thing I'd, I'm happy to be rid of you know, it's, it's that meme, um, like, do you even economic anxiety, bro? Like, mm. it's that, you know, like, do you lift, bro, kind of a thing where um, after a while, it's like, man, it's exhausting. Yeah. You're like, get ahead. You're like, sweet, I've got this under control. This new bill became, invoice got paid. And then the car registration needs to be paid. And in Victoria, it's $750. And you're like, God damn it. Like, I, I would really like to not have to spend 750 bucks on car rego this month. But it's things like that, which are exhausting. Yeah. And so that's what I would like to, if I get wildly wealthy, mm-hmm. that's the thing that I would do is, you know, I wouldn't. I would just give people that freedom to yeah. fail yeah. and have a fallback position. And, you know, that's obviously, it would be, in, in, in real life, everything is more complicated than you think it is. If you're going to have people in your house, you'd have to have some sort of rules. Yeah, and yeah, of course. You don't want to be having people who are, like, running drugs out of your basement. Yeah, yeah, while, yeah. You know, <laughs> Or running sex dens yeah, yeah, in yeah, the yeah. living room, right, yeah. You, know, you, you want to have something like that. But just the, that, I'm so conscious of that privilege, mm. of the privilege of not having fought with my parents because I was, you know, my parents were Buddhist. Right. So they were tolerant of my differences. My dad wasn't happy when I became a comedian, but mm. he now supports me. No one's and dad he, should be. Any father who's happy that their kids become a comedian, when they first announce it, but so, later in the career, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this was the thing, that my dad, when it, when I told him that this is what I wanted to do, I sort of implied that I might be studying to, to uh, do a PhD. Yeah. To kind of cushion <laughs> um, But then comedy started working out, and he said, he did, and again, this is like very much the Buddhist thing, he sort of did it in the way that the Buddha did in parables, which mm. was he asked me three times if I was sure. Okay. Which is sort of the... the which is how consent law works as well. <laughs> he asked me three times if I was sure that this is what I wanted to do, and he, then he said, okay. And then he never said another word about it. Okay. Except when I asked him funny and he said no. And then when I was in the next room and one of his old work colleagues was over for a cuppa and was making fun of him right. for me. Yeah. Saying, oh, is that your daughter that went to Cambridge and did a law degree and is now a comedian? And I, I was sort of in the next room along and I overheard this and dad said, I'm very proud of Alice. Nice. And I was like, nice. okay, so that's yeah. the position. Is he's not going to be wildly enthusiastic and he is absolutely going to defend me to the hilt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, you know, the first time you do Seymour Centre, the first time you do the Opera House, the first time you do television, exactly. you just, you know, now he's wildly proud of me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was one of those big freeing things of my dad is, is a Buddhist, <coughs> but he's also a Jew. Yeah. He must love me. It is compulsory. <laughs> Like, it's compulsory. There's two religions telling him you've got to do this yeah, thing. Right? Yeah, That he has to be equanimous about my decisions and make, let me make my free mm-hmm. uh, choices. And then also, he must love me and support me no matter what I yeah. do. That is, yeah. I mean, particularly Holocaust survivor Jews. It's like family and the rest of the world. It's us and them, like us against the world. There's, um, there's this thing about a Holocaust survivor Jews, which... Um, I don't know whether it's still true, but I, I read that it was a thing that was a, a cultural phenomenon uh, with the first generation of survivors, mm. which their kids were never allowed to complain. 
<laughs> because the parents would be like, "Well, really? Like I survived a, 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 a Dachau. Like you're not allowed to complain about homework." It's a, but as in, I'm saying it in a, in 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 a, in, a, in a light way, but it was an actual serious problem, and it caused issues for that next generation of Jewish kids who grew up frustrated that they couldn't talk about their problems because their parents had the worst problem in the history of humanity basically yeah, yeah. so like i wonder like how much of that is now still seeped through to the future generation so this is super fascinating like it's a really interesting thing to be a jew and i'm mm. not technically a jew i'm jewish from my father's side judaism right. runs down the mother's side because as so my what does that mean if you saying, you always know who their mother is right but if you try claiming Israeli citizenship, oh, I can get it. Absolutely. You can get it. Okay, right. absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm Jewish enough to right. feel it. I feel Jewish, uh, or certainly connected to that culture. Jew jokes upset me. David Badil, I would highly recommend his book. I read it in like an hour. It's called what? Jews Don't Count. Okay. Yeah. 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 I've um, heard of it. Never. And it's a yeah. really it's a really interesting exegesis on the ways in which. Jewish identity, despite being the sort of touchstone for, as you say, the worst experience in the world, the worst, quote-unquote, racial, if these right. racial, oppression in the history of humanity, right. unless you count the Mongols killing 20 million people by hand. Which, yeah. you know, but they didn't kill them because they were a certain ethnicity. They, they just, just killed, killed them because they, they weren't were, Mongols. They were in the way. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. um, but that, 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 that nowadays, anti-Semitism is sort of considered a less than version of racism. So I've had this thing where it's whenever... It's not as bad as real racism is the sort of feeling right. that people have. Because I... among other things, and this is like it's mm. worth reading the book and I'll just sort of finish off yeah. on this. But like this idea that people have that Jews are fine. Jews yes, are fine, because now fine, it's fine. Right. But actually they're not. Yeah. I remember having the like someone very sane, like somebody very sane, an adult, an educated adult um, was like, oh, well, you're rich, you're Jewish. And I was like, actually, no, that's not, you know, that's actually, the yeah. numbers don't stand yeah. up for that. That's yeah. actually not true. Jews per capita are not richer than other people. Right. That's a fucking lie. Yeah. And it's a lie based on anti-Semitic tropes. tropes of, yeah, exactly. That is just being racist. And he yeah. was like, it's, a, it's not even a race. And you're like, oh my God, like it's this weird fucking twisted thing now that because, uh, I guess because there's more intermarriage or because our idea of whiteness has been mm. flattened by the presence of blackness, that there isn't this distinction that yeah. there used to be, that, that uh, Irish were non-white, that Italians were non-white, That's that Jews right. were non-white. You have this flattening. And so there's this erasure of an identity which was not very long ago a cause to obliterate. Yeah, for pogroms and everything. I th So my thing has always been I've never trusted European white people. Mm. Because <clears throat> when the when we, when it comes to racial stuff, right? Like in the last let's say fifty years, it's been um, uh, you know persecution of of brown people, persecution of uh, of people from you know China, Vietnam, those areas, and always persecution of black people. Mm. But for me, there uh, the hatred of the white European mm. always goes back to anti-Semitism. Yeah. Their bigotry always once. They're, they're done expressing rage towards brown people, black people, Asians. If you dig deep enough, you'll always find it goes back to anti-Semitism. And you'll see it because pogroms have been such a part of European culture that it is practically European culture. And you can't just excise that from their thinking either. So one of the things I did with the last post, which right. was last year's Daily Hysterical News podcast set in an alternate dimension, was every day I would do the anniversaries of that day. Yeah. And... For a period, I gave up on it after a while because it was too depressing. I couldn't make jokes enough. For a period, I would just say what had happened to the Jews on this day. Yeah. Uh, they were forbidden to marry in Vienna or they were right. pogromed in Poland or in Russia, all of the shops in the Jewish border were burned down. Mm -hmm. Or like it just, it was just thing after thing after thing. And it just like every single day of the year yeah. is an anniversary of, of something. something like exactly. Horrendous. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 so that, and that's why, like, even within Australia, you're starting to see anti-Semitism coming up more and more, mm. obviously and blatantly. And I don't think it's in the places where, um, for example, the Anti-Defamation League here, um, I, I know the, the people in the world very well. I, I think sometimes they're looking in the wrong places because of Zionist politics. So like they will get angry at the Labour Party 
for backing a, a Palestinian state idea. Yeah. And they'll say, that's anti-Semitism. It's like, no, that's not that's anti-Semitism. Not anti-Semitism. It's actually <clears throat> anti-Semitic to make right. me... Like, this is one of the things that I find very infuriating mm. when people are like, well, what about Israel? It's like, I've never been to yeah, Israel. Yeah. I've never been to Israel. <laughs> my father has never been to Israel. My grandmother yeah. went, never went to fucking Israel. And before my grandmother, Israel was not a Jewish yes. state. So Theodore Herzl didn't have shit like that. Fuck you right? for yeah. assuming that I have a vested interest in the politics of a different country. It's the exact same thing as when you ask a Muslim or oh, do you condemn ISIS? And it's like, dude, what what do I care about ISIS? I live in Melbourne. And yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's the same thing asking a Jew about Israel. It's exactly the same thing. It's, it's, um yeah. <laughs> well yeah, yeah, I mean But you're seeing that rise again of anti-Semitism. I think my favorite Israel adjacent fact, by the way, and again, this is something I'm just going to push for Mm. fucking ever, alongside the fact that man used to be gender neutral. Yes. As a term, and it used to be uh, with man, weaving man, woman, uh, and wear man, war man. Right. I need. We need to bring that back. Okay. Um, In terms of. I'm down. I'm down with that. I'm down with man and war. Like bring back mankind, so I can be in all of the great speeches of history. Yeah. And uh, make it mankind. Make man gender neutral, and you guys can be women, and we'll be women. I'm down with that. I'm fine. Yeah. But the other thing that I always push is the fact that at one point, um, I think uh, Kakadu National Park was proposed as the Jewish state. Yes. (laughs) I'm so. Have you read Levi Tidhar? No, I haven't. Lavidar is one of my favorite um, current like science fiction fantasy novelists, right? And he's Jewish. He, he um, and he writes basically. He wrote, he writes some really really provocative ideas. So he wrote one his first book that won the Booker Prize, another uh, Booker Prize, uh, the Worldcon Prize, I think, was uh, Osama, and it was basically a story in which a man wakes up and he is in an alternate reality in which 9-11 never happened. No, Osama bin Laden, sorry, wakes up. He's in an alternate reality where 9-11 never happened. He's just a taxi driver in New York himself and he's <laughs> sick of the racism and all that stuff. And, and it's, it's a really great exploration of that. The second one, the one that I love, was A Man Lies Dreaming, I think it was called. And it is Adolf Hitler is a, um, um, what's it called? A private investigator in Germany mm. during what should have been the, the Nazi years, but there never was. The Weimar Republic just stayed on. Mm. And it's a young adult working as a private detective and who's now trying to uncover reality. And the whole thing is actually the fever dream, which you run, which runs side by side, of a, a, a Jewish writer who used to write crime noir stories um, as he's dying in a concentration camp. So it's phenomenal writing like that. And so he's done stories which explore the alternate Jewish homelands. So he's done one because Africa was a place that they were looking at for a long time. Alaska. Yes. And so he's done one about Africa. There's a whole book about that. Uh, I think there's one about a short story about the Alaska one. And I know that he was working on one about the Australia project, the Kakadu uh, uh, Park one, which was what if that happened? How would it look today? And that's, yeah. I can't, can't, like genuinely, I am not exaggerating when I say I think about how that would look once a week. I wonder, yeah. if, <laughs> I wonder if it would work. I wonder if the... Because you have Israel. Right. Where, like, I'm not... I'm not a big believer in individual culpability. Mm-hmm. At the same time as thinking individuals need to be punished if they commit crimes or whatever. But, like, I can see all of the ingredients that ended up with them in the situation that they are in now. Yes. Uh, without excusing the horrifyingly right. bad behaviour. You have a, a set of systems and, and uh, protocols put in place by deeply traumatized people yeah. that are then enacted by the heirs of those deeply traumatized people who are traumatized in different ways, um, but who don't have that hard <coughs> humanity mm. that happened. Like yes. one of the things that has always struck me about, again, anecdotally, but just every Holocaust survivor that I ever met was they were fucking kind. Mm-hmm. You know, that they had infinite compassion for humanity. And so you have this kind of situation where these two things have come together. And then you have all of the like crazy rhetoric that happened in America yeah. that led to all the people coming into the... Anyway, the, the point is that like you wonder how those ingredients would have happened if you were situated in a non... 
not surrounded by fucking enemies who wanted to kill you still. We're assuming white Australians were, yeah. It, well, let's assume yes, that would have been a lot more accepting. Yeah, that you would have had more of an ethno state. Of an ethno state set in the middle of Australia, certainly out, away from other cities, which mm-hmm. might have changed it. Yeah. What that would, whether you would have had any kind of. Um, whether you'd have had positive or negative interactions with the indigenous culture. Yeah. You, because if you had, like, what would you... I just, I'm just fascinated by... Yeah, yeah, yeah. How it would have played how out. How it would have played out if you hadn't dropped... Well, there we go. That's deeply your... traumatized people into a place <laughs> yeah. that had rockets aimed at them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That they also had, like, this... weird fucking religious bullshit and then also the, the, the need to prove they're Jewish. Like, mm-hmm. the whole... Like, the, you can see how that whole toxic mess began. Yeah. That the fucked up ways in which it works and the ways that it perpetuates itself and the kind of like weird vengeance yeah. cycles that happen. There's um, a, that John Stewart bit ages ago, which was um, that Jews, the Muslims, the Christians all think they are the promised people, that they are the blessed people, the beloved people of God. And they're fighting over a tiny plot of land full of rock, sand, no water, where barely anything grows. Yeah. It's the Samoans. The Samoans are the promised people. They've got it great. They've got good food, great dancing, great music. Everything's working for them in terms of what they were given. The Jews, Muslims, and Christians are idiots, basically. Well, I mean, like, yeah, the, the idea of a chosen people is such a fucking ridiculous thing anyway. But, yeah, so I, I've been thinking about that. I, I do recommend uh, David Bedil's book. Yes, I will check it out. And... I, I don't agree with him on everything, by the way. That my recommendations... Again, is not always an endorsement of everything. Right. It's, you know, it's like it's. I just think it's really interesting and worth reading. My favorite books are the ones that you feel the need to um, write in the margins with a pencil. I can't bring myself to do that, but I understand the need. I have never. My books are like, if my my books look like they've been read because the spine has been bent, but beyond that. My daughter, one of the biggest like problems I'm having at raising her as a as a parent mm. is she bends the corner of the page when she's uh-huh. done reading it, and it drives me crazy. <laughs> and I'm just le- learning to let that go whenever I walk into the room and I'm like, okay, dinner's ready, and she turned the corner of the page and closed the book, and I'm like, but you're ruining the page when you do that. Don't you value this beautiful artifact? And so like, for me, it's. Um, I have two ways of approaching a book because yeah. I used to skip out of class and go to the bookshop across the road and read a whole book. Yeah. So I can read a book without bending the spine. I can oh, read a book and leave okay. it untouched. Very you know, nice. That's one yeah. of the things. But that when you own it, you don't want to do that whole... But I have this very fond association <clears throat> with of, of sharing textbooks with my brother mm-hmm. in university or sharing readings. Right. We, did, we both did English. That was our crossover point at university. So we'd have the same text. Yeah. Um, and writing notes in the margin and reading his notes in the margin. Ah, okay. So I have this really like fond feeling for yeah. that process of, and I think it's sort of there's a distinction in my head between uh, fiction books, which ought to remain pristine, mm. okay. or else be completely battered and loved. Right. Yeah. Um, and sort of textbooks or non-fiction books, which yeah. are reference books, and um, which. You, m- deserve marginalia which deserve okay. engagement yes. in that kind of textual way and that's also quite a jewish thing uh have you ever read the torah um no or well, seen the torah yes i've seen it I've never uh, read it yet. so what you have is the central text and then you have the commentaries around it and right. then you have the commentaries on the commentaries around oh that. so it is a cultural so thing so it's a cultural thing it's this like the the, the discourse <laughs> and the argument that is like such an important part like that's why really jewish people my granny always used to say about like super orthodox Jews is it's not very Jewish to be that Jewish. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> too committed to something. Yeah, you need yeah. to argue about it it's more. All, yeah. yeah, you have to have yeah. this kind of back and forth and, and here and there. And that's like such a an important part of the culture. And I think with non-fiction books, mm-hmm. that's how I engage with them. I'll engage okay. and particularly ones that I like that are good. For me, it feels like a conversation and I have to say, yes, well, you fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, you, know, like, you know, whatever that is. Um, yeah. You should have read this book, you idiot. <laughs> like, All right, okay. I'll check out. I'll just check out every deal. Um, and then, what's it called? The other one, uh, the one that I've been really enjoying these days, I don't know if you read this. Uh, it's How to Lose the Time War. Yes. Yes. I just finished it. And, and Describe I, it for Alice. Okay, so basically it's a book about a war taking place through time, through the time streams of alternate realities and multiple realities between two factions, the red and the blue. 
and um, they don't give you more, m- much more detail than that. But what happens is two soldiers from each side, a soldier from the red and a soldier from blue, fall in love with one another while fighting each other through the time stream and leave messages and communications to one another hidden, encoded in the rings of a tree that grows over 500 years or, or in the way that the grasslands will grow across the Mongolian plains. And if you zoom out high enough, you'll be able to see a language that's hidden in the way the grass weaves and things that, and it is stunning. I, I finished reading it and I was, I just, I read the whole, t- I did the audiobook for it once, then went back and listened to the audiobook for it right away again. And now I'm trying to find a copy here in Melbourne. I haven't been able to, but it's one of those where it's like, God, I wish I had come up with the ideas in this because I'm so utterly jealous of the sheer imagination of that story. I love it so much. Uh, yeah, I love that when you when you think of, of things like that. For me, there's all these story ideas that sort of come back mm-hmm. into my life that I feel like, oh, I should write that. At some yeah, point. yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm writing these. I've got one book ongoing which has been ongoing for two years at this point. Um, and that's, it's not very, it's very unlike me to take so long over a book. Normally I'll take maybe a month or two to write the first draft and then you know the edits take about a year. But this one, it's only because life just kept getting in the way of the writing process. Mm. So I'm now finally kind of picking up steam on that. And that's like a non, that's a, a that's a fiction, but it's a, it's a non-fantasy. That's my literary fiction work. And then my daughter had a dream a few months, a few years ago now, she was three or two years old and she told me this dream and it's a great line. The, the line was, quickly run to the house of clocks, the nothing man is coming, the pretend man is coming. Yeah. And I was like, that's the book. That's the book I'll write for her one day. Yeah. And so I started writing the book finally uh, and I stole a, a, an idea from Neil Gaiman. I'm handwriting it. Mm. I always type. But it wasn't working. I kept typing it. It wouldn't work, wouldn't work. And I bought a journal and I bought a fountain pen and it's coming out great. And so my daughter was like, read me the first chapter. I was like, fine. So I read her the first chapter. And the first chapter, it starts with a, a person dying. And she's like crying. And she's like, I Why do you have to kill them? So I take my idea back from you. So now I'm stuck in a situation where she's revoked the rights of the idea, which is originally hers. And because she doesn't like what I'm doing with it. But I'm in the process of writing it. I don't want to stop. <laughs> so I'm in an intellectual property battle with well, my 11-year-old. I think what you should do is at the beginning of the book say, I do not dedicate this to my daughter. Yeah. <laughs> I will spite her. I refuse to dedicate yeah. this to my daughter. You took the idea back. Yeah, yeah. So there's no, there's no copyright in an idea, Sammy Shaw. I know there isn't, but uh, she can be spiteful. The moral rights. <laughs> That's be what it is. You gotta respect those. Yeah. Mm, gotta respect the consent <clears throat> of the, the participants. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's amazing. So, what else have you been wrestling with? Um, what have I been wrestling with? I. Uh, I've been, all in all, very well. I had a bad year. Everyone had a bad year. I had a very bad year. I sort of think most people in Australia didn't have that bad a year. <laughs> no, like they talk about it. I mean, yeah, look, compared to the years other people around the world have had, you know, if you're, compared to the years in, in a developing nation or the average whoever, I know. And I had a bad year by first world country yeah, yeah, standards yeah. and et cetera, et cetera, with all those caveats in place. But yes, my marriage fell apart. It happened just before, um, it happened three months after we got married and it, uh, and it happened because of infidelity on her part, which is a really shitty thing to do to someone else. Um, and, uh, so that was hard and then I had to lock down all by myself and that was hard. And then I had to deal with, you know, my broken heart and all of those things. If you don't mind me asking, I'm going to timestamp this so I can go if you would prefer. Um, did you find out or did she tell you? So she, there is a difference Yes. So she told me that she wanted to have an open relationship mm. um, and it was not something I was in favor of, but I was, it was made clear to me it's happening whether I like it or not. Mm. Um, so I went along with it. Uh, and then when I asked her to stop having the open relationship, she did say she would stop. Uh-huh. And that she did stop. And then little things were there like when I was like, well, did you have sex with him? She's like, no, I didn't. And then later it's like, you discover that she goes, oh, no, no, I, you know, sex is penetration. Penetration didn't happen. I'm like, why are you lawyering me? Like, this is like, this is, we're not playing pedantics over here. So it was that kind of a thing um, where it was that. And then, and then I found out that she'd still been seeing him and then it was over basically. Yeah. Um, So there was a, you know, like 
it's never as simple or it might be, but it's very rarely as simple as you walk home one day and you open the door and your partner's with someone else and then it's done. Yeah. Life's never that clean. Yeah. There's always messiness and prolonged conversations and attempts at getting back together that are that are ill-advised and half-hearted and all of those things. And then you spend seven months with trying to deal with nostalgia and all of those things. And yeah, so it's, yeah, it's a mess. And then you can write a comedy show about it and you call the show Cuck. Because, <laughs> because as uh, according to Ivan Aristigeta's uh, lovely partner, I am the only BDSM comedian she's ever seen. Where I'm, sad- I'm sadomasochistic, she says. Not BDSM, just the SNM part. Uh, she says, I'm sadistic towards the audience. Because I love, I love talking about things that make the audience very uncomfortable and hard for them to uh, deal with. And I'm masochistic point? towards... What's the point of not dealing with difficult right? things in comedy? And, and I'm masochistic towards myself. Because I'll do things like the show f- finishes. You're, you're coming to my show tonight. Yes, I am. So the show finishes... And when it finishes, the music that plays as the audience is filing out is the same song, it's a Pakistani song, that played at our wedding when we walked, when she walked down the aisle towards me. Because it's a song I've always loved. I deeply loved. I gave it to her for our wedding, for us to have. Yeah. And I'm trying to own it back now. I was about to say, that seems like an incredibly right? wise thing to do, actually. So I'm trying to take the song back. Now, here's the, the audience doesn't know any of this. I haven't told the audience about the importance of the song. It never comes up in the show, the significance of the song. It's just a song that's playing when they're walking out. Yeah. But she, you know, and, and, and when I told one or two people, they're like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> just no, take it easy no, on yourself. absolutely <laughs> genius. So this is one of the things I talk about in my show is that I got an email from a person who said that they couldn't watch a Zoom show I was going to be in. This was fairly early in lockdown. Right. I don't want to spoil it because you're coming to see my show tonight. Yes, that's right. Kronos uh, at the Melbourne Comedy Festival. Um, they said that they could not come to this Zoom show because the booker had booked someone who they'd heard on Twitter was a predator. Oh, okay. And I... Okay. Which is a confusing thing to begin right. with. That, like, I'm not going to do the jokes from the show, but, like, yeah. come on, if I don't get booked by anyone who's yeah, ever that's booked right. a predator... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then the next thing that they said was that there were things that they and their friends could not do because mm-hmm. they were associated with assault in their minds. And I couldn't tell... Okay. By this email, whether they meant that they were triggering, and even if they were, I'm still not sure how yeah. I feel about it, whether they meant that they were triggering or that, that this was a matter of principle. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, fine. In the way that not coming to my show, right. because it was it was being used to explain why they weren't coming to my show. Yes. So I'm not sure if it was analogous or if it was this kind of triggering thing, whether it's like genuinely worrying for your mental health. Mm. Or if it was just a matter of principle, but certain brands of beer, certain venues, and the entire city of Portsmouth. Yes, basically, would <laughs> which, be. Which you just, just got. This is what they said. These are they. They said there were certain brands of beer they couldn't drink. That there were certain venues they couldn't go to, and there was the entire city of Portsmouth was now off limits. Wow. And you just go. Fuck off. Well, uh, what, at that point, so okay, so <clears throat> I think you know the unpopular opinion point of the show. Yes. I'm going to dive in This here. is where we're... Yeah, this is where right, we're here's right I think we've done... With well-intentioned plans in place, we've done a very bad job of informing and teaching and managing mental health. Yes. And we're in a bad place right now where we're taking steps in the wrong directions. Yes. So for the first thing is the importance of mental health, bringing that forward, has been a wonderful thing. Yes. Right. No one told me when I was a kid growing up how much a part of mental, how much a part of my life, my mental health and other people's mental health will be. Yes. Right. I was not prepared. I was not informed that this was a thing. And that there's a like my biggest thing for mental health is that there is a difference. Right. Between being mentally well. Yes. And being mentally ill. That there is something in between which yeah. is. Just like being an unhealthy person. What yes. Is, so maybe something that you would analogize to like, you know, what they call skinny fat. Okay. People yeah, yeah. who aren't, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. obviously right. uh, out of shape, but they just don't look after themselves. Yeah. And they're not in a good position if they get sick, if they get injured. Right. And I think mental health is like that as well. You can, if you take care of your mental health, you mm-hmm. can be in a resilient position where when life comes at you... Because it will. And these dips happen. And right. It's horrible. You can you have the tools 
to crawl out of it. So yes. say you, something happens to you that is the equivalent of breaking your ankle, mm. you have the tools to get out of that and not have a limp for the rest of your life. Right. And in the same way, if you don't care for your mental health, if you don't have a baseline level of mental mm. wellness, which is sort of a horrible sure. term, but like just being fine, being okay, being resilient, you break your ankle and you're fucked for life. Yeah. And I think that's a super important part of it. But you go on with your thoughts. No, but that, and, and that's, that's exactly what I mean. It's about the management of it. Right? So like we, the cool thing is we now know it's an issue. Like we yes. know my, my daughter and her friends, they know when one of their friends has anxiety. They know how to handle that. They know what depression looks like and they're aware they taught these things. I think that's a wonderful thing. Yes. I also think <clears throat> the destigmatization of getting help, which is still an ongoing thing has come a long way. Hugely. Right? It's wonderful and it's it's been powerful to see men who are open to seeing psychologists and talking to therapists and things like that. Yes. I think that's also wonderful. I think, however, we have given it too much control over our lives and we are not taking personal responsibility. So there's a few things that I've started thinking in my head. One of them is, after 30, it's your fault. <laughs> it's you can't blame your parents anymore yes your parents fucked you up by decisions they made whatever and but it's your i don't mean like it's not their fault i mean it's your fault in that you're not now managing it yourself yeah. it's, your responsibility it's your responsibility to handle the problems that were given to you inflicted to you because guess what everyone's parents fucked it's up on exactly the same thing as millennials going like adulting right like you're fucking 40. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, it's exactly. Your now, world do your taxes. Now. If you have a problem with the world, you change yeah. it. You're the man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, fucking do it. <clears throat> just do it. And exactly. I, like, it's annoying for everyone. Just, it's exactly that same thing. So, of, 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 I think people abdicating responsibility for. Uh, it's, a, it's a balance, right? It's yes. a balance. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm trauma not saying. Trauma is trauma, is trauma. But at a certain point, you go, okay, here's the part of it that I have mm -hmm. control over and here's where I need to work. Yes. And I can't just throw up my hands and be like, well, my ankle's fucked forever. Like, exactly. I have to You have to fix your stuff. ankle yourself now. So one of the things was um, my... Like, maybe that I, I, means getting a brace. Maybe that means like chopping your ankle off and getting yeah, a exactly, yeah, Like yeah. Maybe there's like, you, but the, there's help that you can get and there's access and there's resources and all of that. And it's your responsibility to find those things yeah. and sort it out. Not saying, well, my parents were there when my ankle broke when I was 12 and it's this is their fault. And yeah. I'm never going to fix it. They never it. bought me the right shoes. They, I'm never going to fix it because they didn't fix it. Right. Yeah. So that's been one thing. Now, I put that on Twitter um, to kind of connect this to trauma. Myself. I put that on Twitter months ago as a dumb joke yeah. one night one line as a and all i said was after the age of 30 it's your it's not your parents fault it's your fault just dumb and a, a woman responded and said this is bullshit this is so offensive i was abused sexually abused by my teacher and my parents knew it was happening and they let it happen and this and i replied by saying okay for starters obviously i'm not talking about extreme situations this is a dumb tweet yeah. It's a joke. It's a silly point of view, right? But secondly, if you are so traumatized still by that experience that you are finding offense in a comedian's timeline of dumb things that he said in the last 15 minutes and connecting it to your trauma, you might be better served taking care of that trauma by going to getting therapy and all that stuff than attacking someone who had nothing to do with what you said, with what you've experienced, nothing to do with what you are currently experiencing, and obviously was not aiming anything at you at all. Yeah, this is a thing that I've come back to many times over the years, and it's a really hard thing to figure your way through because it's the, it's sort of the same as the um, don't blame women who are for going out late at night. Mm -hmm which is what people say when the police say, please don't go out right, late at yeah. night, there's a predator on the loose. And everyone goes, well, you shouldn't tell me what to do. Predators shouldn't predate. Right. That, that That's a nice principle. That's how the world ought to be. Realistically speaking, like if you can't function in the world, right? if you go to a comedy show and it traumatizes you, if you are not resilient enough to deal with a loud noise in the street sure. or a certain kind of person who looks a certain kind of way, if that is enough... Black people. We're talking about black people. Here, I'm kidding. <laughs> Maybe. 
Yeah. There's an interesting <laughs> thing that I, I would tell you about a South African guy who'd been stabbed and was super racist. He'd been stabbed by a I'm pretty sure man. he was super racist before the stabbing the as question, well. He's South African. It's like he's never not going to be racist. Their baseline he has is a, racist. You know, right? a massive yeah. scar from his hip to his ribs. Yeah. He's yeah, never yeah, not yeah. going to be racist. But like that, all of that aside, like this, this thing of, of you shouldn't have to deal with that. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't have to be traumatized by the world absolutely but at the same time if you're if you're allergic to something and you go to a restaurant it's your job yes like which is so and that you have to tell them you have to you have to make the lines you have to you you have to look after yourself it's not fair that you have this allergy it's not fair that you have this disability it's not fair that you have this trigger point this trauma this weakness this whatever it is this vulnerability this soft spot in the top of your head that is not your fault and it's not fair that you have to do that but this is the. But that's literally the the so that what you're saying right now is exactly what my main thesis is with with this, which is and it's something I've, I've taken a long time. I'm still working my way through thinking about it, which is um, your mental health is your responsibility. Yeah. I wear glasses yeah. because I am blind without them. Yeah. I don't not wear my glasses, bump into shit, break shit, drive around the city killing people and then go, well, someone else has got to fix this. If I, I can't fix it. No, I have to go. And it's expensive and it's a regular checkup and it costs a lot of money and it costs a lot of time and, and I hate putting eye drops in and that's scary for me, but I do all that, right? I was in... And at the same time, though, just to interrupt mm-hmm. again, <laughs> yeah, there is this balance where you can, you can, you can be considerate. You can ask. I'm for. not being right. Yeah, exactly. You can go. Okay, um, could I get the menu in a bigger font? Yes. You know, like or could I could could we have this signage more clear? If that's possible, particularly if it's friends of yours, yeah, yeah, yeah. who are asking you to do this close reading text, and you're like, I can't read this. Could you give it to like or any? Right. I think particularly with personal relationships, you can say. Look, hey, the color orange really fucks me up. In the real world, I'm gonna like swallow yeah. my my pain about the color orange. Yeah. I obviously can't ask people in the whole world to not wear the color orange, but you as my friend, like, can we not? Right. Like, I think there is that difference between public and private there. But the thing that kind of got me thinking about this was after my breakup happened. Yes. One of the questions. So many people asked me that I was like, why is this question? I would not even have thought to ask this question. But so many people ask me this question. Oh, did she have mental illness problems? Yeah. Did she have borderline personality disorder? Did she have this disorder? Did she have that? And I started going, well, okay, yes. Depression was an issue or, or is an issue or, or, or I don't know if it's undiagnosed BPD or whatever. Yeah. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah. If she had those problems or has those problems, it was her responsibility to manage them so they don't destroy other people's lives. If yeah. I knew about the problems I knew about, I was helping her with because that's a commitment I made to someone, right? Um, and that's the same commitment. Your partner turns out the diabetes. Yeah. They have diabetes. You help them with the diabetes, right? It's things like that. Um, You're like, I but, guess I'm not making my meringue right, tonight. Right, right. Or, or, you know, um, when she was a, uh, you know, when my ex was uh, sober because she used to be an alcoholic before that, I would never drink at home. Yeah. Right. Until she was very confident through therapy and everything that she doesn't mind if I'm drinking, but she can't drink. And, you know, that was like, that's a thing in negotiation that took place. Not in negotiation, but regardless. Um, The idea being that you have to manage it yourself. And if you don't manage it yourself, what's, but what's happening now is every single person, and you see this on social media so much, is every single person goes, well, I have depression. Well, I have this. And we're allowing our mental illnesses to define us in a way that is not, I think, it's not an empowerment thing. Yeah. It's shifting into excuse making. Yes. I can't do this because, like someone, you know, was like, like, I used to get annoyed and I know it's an unfair thing and I tried to stand up it didn't quite work because it's, I sound like a dick but I used to be joke that um, I wish I had depression I wish I had the mental illness that meant I could stay in bed all day and let someone else go and work and pay the bills you know it was that because yeah. that's how frustrating it is to be a partner with someone partner so with I someone with depression ar- I wrote this article many years ago yeah. for Beyond Blue Day right oh, are, are you okay day yeah of of kind of the other side of this of when you ask someone are you okay that's that's a nothing 
really it's like, useless this is like it doesn't factor in what it actually takes to help somebody who has this level of mm-hmm. mental health mm-hmm. issue if somebody's really depressed yeah it is like you're both in the water and they are drowning and you have to be again this mental wellness thing you yeah. have to be fucking buoyant yeah yeah and if you're not buoyant i don't blame you yeah for not for cutting yourself loose yeah when i used to do surf lifesaving this was a thing that we we discussed among ourselves and thank goodness it never came up but if you're in the water if you don't have a buoyancy aid with you and uh, you can't approach someone in a safe manner. They'll, if they're drowning, they'll clutch on to you and mm. they will pull you underwater. And the thing that you're meant to do, I don't know if you're meant to do it anymore, but back in the day, uh, the thing that you were meant to do and the thing that was secretly spoken about that you had to do mm-hmm. was punch them in the fucking face. Right. And get yourself away from them. I have seen that episode of Baywatch where that actually and happens. And then come in from behind if you can right. and take them out that way. If you can. Yeah. But at, there is a point, I think, with mental health, particularly with uh, friends or partners, where you do everything you can to help mm-hmm. them. And at a certain point, you think, I can't save you. Yeah. And this will Give take me, me well. down right. too. Yeah. And that's a really hard thing to talk about. It's a really hard thing to think about. It's that... It's that, that what you're talking about, this idea that it's kind of an external force for which they are not to be blamed. But there is a difference, again, between blaming someone for mm. their pain yes, and defending yourself from the impact of that. Right. That there, there has to be this distinction between, well, the world, if it were a fairer place, if it was a better place, I would have infinite resources to help. Yeah. I would. Yeah, you know, yeah, absolutely. If it, were a, if it was a good place, I could help you all the time. I could give you all the time and the energy. And this really struck me when my mum was psychotic and I had a, a close friend who was going into a depression mm. and a bad one, like a, a bad one. And they were calling me at two o'clock in the morning and asking me to come and, and help them in the night and, and threatening to threatening self-harm and all of this stuff. And I said, you got to call your parents, man. Yeah, I got to do this for you. Like, it was the first time in my life as somebody who'd always thought of myself as compassionate, as a child carer, as somebody who'd always identified myself with my compassion. It was the first time and I was 24 and mum was so, so crazy and I could spend half an hour with her and buy her five minutes of peace. Right. If I, like, thought my way around her crazy brain and, and gave her this kind of physical comfort but not that kind of physical stimulus and this and that and made sure that she was drinking enough water. Like, if I put half an hour in, I could buy her five minutes of peace and before it all went off the rails again. And I did not have the fucking juice to pay attention yeah. to my friend. I just made this, like, brutal decision it was the first time in my life i came up against the limits of my own resources in that way and i was like you don't matter to me yeah as much as my mom does absolutely i'm cutting you loose and in that moment it wasn't even it, you don't matter to me as much as my mom does it was you don't matter to me as much as me taking care of myself enough so i can be there for my mom yeah. does yes yeah. that this right? this like it was such a like it felt like a capitalist yeah. calculation yeah. of like this and is the I money think, that I have and I cannot spend it on you. I think part of that is also like with Are You Okay Day, which is a great idea, again, great initiative, but it is very much like the black tile on your Instagram to show that the Black Lives Matter, even though 90% of the people I know who've done that, I have personally had racialized and racist experiences with them as well. So I'm like, really go fuck yourself. But <laughs> um, the, the thing is we are outsourcing our mental health care that we should be taking responsibility for to either others around us Mm. or to psychologists. Now, I am not Tom Cruise and I'm not going down a Scientologist rant about I don't believe in psychology. But I don't think it is the cure-all that we are expecting it to be because, and, and we don't do the work ourselves. Many people I know um, go to many go to psychologists. I know a, a lot of our friends go yeah. to psychologists mm, regularly, right? Like they will go 
for years and years and years. And the only noticeable difference a lot of times is they're still assholes. They just know why they're assholes now. <laughs> so this That's is the problem. only difference that they've achieved. So I think this is a problem with our medical system as a whole. In, in psychology is a manifestation or an ex, uh, sort of a, an expression. Also, it's a liberal art. It's not, an, it's not a science. It's a liberal <laughs> art. Psychology is as scientific as comparative literature. Well, right? I mean, psychology, psychiatry, therapy. I think psychiatry a, is an actual psych- thing. Psychiatry, but even so. Right. This is one of the things with the whole medical thing. And I, like, again, if I become a bajillionaire, maybe I'm just going to do this anyway. <laughs> like, I always keep putting things off until I have more resources. Right, maybe I'm yeah. just going to fucking fight this fight now. Food in hospitals is garbage. Mm-hmm. Since the dawn of time, okay. we know that you're meant to feed healthy. sick people yes. healthy food. And you go to hospital and it's white bread and jello and ice cream and it's disgusting. Yeah. And it's not nourishing and it's not wholesome and it's no good. It's no good. Yeah. And it's the same thing that happens in psychiatry or psychology where people will go in, they'll get a diagnosis. They have this, this, this diagnosis that pathologizes them and that they can sort of hang their hat on. You, have, they, you get this medication or mm. you get this whatever it is and you think, well, I've dealt with that. And you don't think about the whole yes. person. I'm going to chop out your kidney and then feed you fucking tuna on white bread. Like, with yeah, yeah. It's like, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? This is, a, this is a whole person. This is a whole life. Just telling someone that they have this X problem yes. doesn't help fix it. And I cannot that I'm saying that that's all that psychiatrists or psychologists do. Often right. they'll give you coping mechanisms. But... I think I th- there's something that's missing, and I don't know what it is. Yeah, because I'm, I'm not I have, I'm, in this field. Neither am I. I'm not solutions oriented. There is something here. missing between in this process that we're trying to get to, and as you say, everyone wants the best here. Mm-hmm. There's something missing in the process of going. Okay, this is a real problem, and okay, this yes. is a real solution. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be that you're fixed. Or that your brain is patched up, or that we've sewn the hole mm-hmm. closed in your heart. Mm-hmm. But these are the these are the um, mobility aids. These are the functional tools. These are the these are the crutches you need. These are the special braces you have to wear. Like yeah. they, there has to be a, a, a way of of getting dysfunction functional again. Yes, and I think what we're doing wrong is we are so what we'll do is like you said you go to a psychologist once a week for an hour yeah and that's not enough yeah to get to fix real deep-rooted problems yeah or you'll go or that becomes such a routine that you think because you're doing it you are now fine right so one of the things for example um well you're ticking that box right you're you're doing the, the thing I realized after, you know, when lockdown started and, and after like I was a heartbroken mess and everything that I was like, I need a therapist. So I, I reached out and got a therapist, um, one who really I could work well with. Over Zoom, we did the sessions and I basically did, I think we did it for six, seven months. Mm-hmm. And after six, seven months, I was like, this can be an addiction. This can be a situation where I think for the one hour that I'm talking to this person, I'm solving all my problems. And then the rest of the week, I'm fine. But actually, I should be working on this all week long. And even the coping mechanisms they give me are good. But in the end, like I've got a little bit of skepticism around psychology, not psychiatry, around psychology, because they've been having a crisis for 10 years that they don't like talking about publicly, which is basically nothing holds up under test conditions. Yes, yes. Right? The replicability crisis in the right. social sciences and in psychology is a which is why for serious me, fucking problem. Massive problem, which is why I love pissing off psychologists by saying what you do is no different from comparative literature. <laughs> so fuck off. Like, yeah. I'd rather read Chaucer and get the same help that I get. And you know what I realized? I would go, I talk to my psychologist, who's a lovely person and very good psychologist. And then a few days later, I would go to Ivan's house mm-hmm. and Ivan and his girlfriend and I, and we'd have beers and I would talk there and I realized I would feel better and get more brutal and honest answers that I needed to hear and have people who've known me for years tell me, this is what's wrong with you. Like you got through the shit with one line today where you were like, yeah, the reason why you're going to get mad a third time, Sammy, is because you're a hopeless romantic. And unfortunately, that's true. I need to fix that. 
I, th- I think I said it's because you're a storyteller. There's okay. no better story right. than romance. That's right. Yes. Exactly. Exactly that. And so I'm like, now I need to worry about that. But that's a... Psychologists would have done... And the problem happened where I... After this, after about a year of the psychology session, I was like, I'm actually doing a lot better. I'm in a better place. I work on myself all the time. I'm conscious of the problems I have and I'm paying attention to them. You don't go to a doctor when you're healthy. You go to a doctor when you're sick. I'm going to stop seeing my psychologist. Like, until I need her again. Until something yeah. bad happens. And so, and then she emailed me twice in three months going, just want to check if you're okay and when... Do you want to have a session again? And I was like, it is a business. Yeah. I was a repeat customer. Yeah. She's lost a customer now. So it just makes me suspicious of how much reliance we put on a tool, which is only a partial tool to yes. fix a massive problem. Yeah. Um, the ship is blocking the Suez Canal. The psychologist is one person with a shovel. Yeah. You need a lot more people with shovels or a bigger machine. Yeah, I think the problem is not that they don't help. I yes. think the problem is that if you think they are the only thing you need, exactly. you are wrong. Which is what most people are doing. And then because they feel they have psychologists, they're not fixing their problems the way they should be. And then if you say anything like, hey, that was a shitty thing you did, they'll go, yeah, but I have depression. Yeah. And they'll use that as an excuse to be shitty. And it become, it's, become a, it's become a whole connected cycle, well, it's the which same, I'm seeing play out again and again. To kind of pull it back to the physical health analogy, mm. it's the same as getting a personal trainer for an hour once a week right. without changing anything else about your yeah, diet yeah. and lifestyle. You're like, I want to have six-pack abs like Dwayne The Rock Johnson. <laughs> so what I'm going to do is high-intensity interval training for one hour a week yeah. and otherwise change Just pasta nothing. and biryani. Just, for just, yeah. yeah, and so you just go, well... That doesn't work. Mm. So if, on the other hand, what you have is the kind of personal trainer who's like, this is the program, these are the ways to keep in touch, and that you you have that kind of understanding of it as part of a kind of a whole process, then you might get to this point of of mental health where you can feel (coughs) resilient enough to be like, yeah, cool, man, I can write my own program. Now I I know my body, I know what I can... Yeah, very true. Um, I think self-care, the value of self-care... Is something we talk about a lot, but I think actually doing it is something we're still learning how to do. Um, Charlie George, who was a guest on The Gargle a couple of weeks ago, did a segment and it just had this phrase that I was like, one of those things where you're like, I fucking wish I'd written that. Um, but she, she said she'd had a revelation uh, that she could do self-care out of the bath. <laughs> <laughs> like that she didn't need to be wet <laughs> that's like, a great line oh fuck you yes. fuck you that is so perfect this idea of self-care is this like aesthetic yeah. instagram thing yeah. when in fact what it probably is is fucking doing your taxes or yeah like, you, you know what was for me i realized i um the you know that thing that happens during the comedy festival where you will you, the shows happen and you you're having a great show and people are laughing and then afterwards you meet other comedians who you haven't seen in years and you're hugging each other and everything and then you go home and you crash and the morning you wake up and the adrenaline is plummeting yeah until that evening again but so that in the mornings and afternoon you're just feeling weird Uh and and normally i don't have that i i i woke up this morning feeling after a year of not doing right really i've done like one or two real life gigs I felt so happy this morning. Absolutely. I felt so, so happy. So I've been feeling that way, amazing, refreshed and all that. But the one thing that changed in me, because I'm so grateful for the festival, yeah. the emotional upheavals need to go somewhere. Yeah. I was watching Superstore, the TV show, which is a funny <laughs> show. It's one of those background TV shows. You have it on the background. The writing's sharp and funny and cute. And something happened to one of the characters and I'm making breakfast and I just start crying. Like, and he had, by the way, this isn't like someone cheated on a character, nothing like, nothing relatable. Yeah. Totally different story. I just like crying. Yeah. And I'm making omelets just weeping. I'm like, this needs to stop. So I need to I, add less salt to this omelet. Yeah, clearly. I'll, I'll, put, I'll stop putting onions. Um, so I got in the car. I drove to the shopping mall. I bought myself two pairs of shoes because I was like, fuck it. Why can't men do this? And I bought myself two really nice pairs of shoes. And I feel a lot better. <laughs> I felt great after that. Felt much better. Came home. I was like, that was self-care. <laughs> you know? Yeah, sometimes it is. Sometimes yeah, it is. Yeah. Having a bath or buying yourself some shoes, and sometimes it's like 
turning off social media. Yes. And, like, not looking at the self-care memes is self-care. <laughs> <laughs> a thing I put up once on Instagram, um, which uh, I was crazy how, like, the response I got, um, which was the people who post the most memes about the journey to of life that they're on are the ones who never pay attention to the people they've run over on that journey. Like the bodies just littering the road back there kind of a thing. The, the line I have in my show is uh, people who say you are enough are always too much. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I remember like I put up my thing and like a bunch of like comics and friends were like, thank you, I've got a cousin who's just freaking annoying. Like, you know, like, just one of those people who's, like, just put pictures of themselves with the sunset and you are winning at life written over it. It's like, no, you're destroying other people's lives. Well, yeah. speaking of self-care, self-care mm. for me now is to go and work on my show. You do that. Which I'm going to watch tonight. Where can people find you online, which I've given so many podcasts in the last few years that that is now how I end conversations in real life. Um, where, can yeah. people, where can people find you online? Um, I don't have a podcast. I'm the, I'm the one person who doesn't right now. So uh, you can find me on thesamishah.com. That's T-H-E-S-A-M-I-S-H-A-H.com. Uh, anything I'm doing will kind of pop up over there on my website. Otherwise, the socials, uh, Twitter, at Sammy Shaw, Instagram, at Sammy Shaw. Also, you have a Patreon. I do have a Patreon. Thank you, Alice. <laughs> I do know what I'm doing with my life and career. Um, <laughs> it's patreon.com slash Sammy Shaw. Um, I'm publishing short stories over there. Uh, first chapters, and uh, ongoing chapters of an ongoing novel, uh, and I'll be adding more content soon. Um, and I, yeah, I, I do one-on-one -on -one interviews. I gave my mum's dal secret dal recipe a few weeks ago, and it went off gangbusters. So, a scandal. Yes, yes. Uh, thank you so much for having tea with me. Thanks for having me.